14 to 38. Uh, then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we, see, that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment and make them tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wine skins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and put your hands on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you, and the woman was healed at that moment. Then Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes. He said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. As Jesus went on from that, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Uh, it can be a bit tricky, can't it? Trying to update uh, your phone, upgrade it, a bit of a troublesome process. Uh, I've got a friend of mine who's one of those early adopters of everything Apple, so has to have the latest iPhone on you know, the day that it comes out, pretty much. Um, yeah, he has always has a few problems. So I remember when he got his iPhone 4, uh, that version of iTunes that he has was incompatible with it, so he had to upgrade that software. That seems like a pretty common theme with every new one. When he had an iPhone 5, he wanted to show me that, but the battery was flat. He, uh, I offered to lend him my charger, but apparently that is incompatible with the new thing for the phone, so he had to get the whole new cable with that. Uh, when he got his iPhone 6, the SIM card he had was incompatible. Uh, he had to get a small one to fit in there. And sure enough, this year when he got his iPhone 7, his headphones were incompatible. So he had to on that. I keep asking him, is it really worth it? 
to get this thing on the day it comes out. Don't even wait a little bit. But he insists that each time it's the beginning of a new era. One day, everyone will have the latest model, and then the world will do away with everything that's incompatible with the newest iPhone. Well, if you're anything <coughs> like my friend, then perhaps you already have a better understanding of Matthew's passage tonight, in his end half of chapter 9. Because Jesus begins by pointing out how some of the old religious practices are now incompatible with the new era that he brings. And then through the work of some miracles, he demonstrates that this is the beginning of that new era, the new kingdom of God. Uh, so read along with me, we're in Matthew chapter 9, starting from verse 14. There's a lot of content in this uh, passage, so I'm sorry if I don't get through the entire chapter. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, Somebody's got a question against Jesus. This isn't all that surprising to us because we've already seen the Pharisees have a problem with who Jesus hangs out with in verse uh, 11, isn't it? Uh, The scribes in verse 3 think that Jesus is a blasphemer. But now a question about Jesus' ministry comes up from the disciples of John. That that is a little bit odd. We we thought that were the good guys one day on our side. Um, John the Baptist is a massive fan of Jesus. Um, has that changed? John's disciples come to Jesus wanting to know why he and his disciples are not following the practices of godly people by fasting. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So it's okay, they're not the bad guys. They're actually concerned about um, the proper and correct ways to worship God. One of those practices of godly people was fasting. Fasting to them is it's a deeply religious practice. It's not for diet and nutrition like you might think. It's often associated with mourning, with feeling sad about something. You would fast to show your sadness, um, particularly during the days of like, a funeral of a close friend. You, or you would fast to show your concern with the presence of sin and evil in the world. And your fasting would be this serious acknowledgement that the world isn't as it should be. The point is, fasting is a practice of godly people, so why do the disciples of Jesus spend so much time feasting and never fasting? The answer Jesus gives uh, is a bit curious. He doesn't concede to their rebuke, nor does he blast them for being ignorant. How could he? Jesus himself condones fasting just a a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 6. But instead, Jesus focuses on a new setting in which the old practices are just not compatible. Uh, That's the point of the three quick illustrations at the start of this passage. The old practices are not compatible with the new kingdom. Jesus explains that actually it's a time of feasting for his disciples, they currently enjoy it, how could they not, and it just wouldn't be appropriate to fast in that setting. To not eat would mean you're refraining from celebrating. Think about how inappropriate it would be to not celebrate a wedding. 
to go along to a wedding, yet not eat the wedding cake, not eat any of the food that's offered to you. Isn't that just inappropriate? So Jesus likens himself to a bridegroom who is celebrating with the guests of his wedding. Fasting is just not compatible with the celebration that they're enjoying. He even gives this subtle gift as to a time when you will be taken away, a slight nod to the cross that leads in peace. He also hints that a new season is arriving where the old practices will be incompatible. This is the new patch and the fresh wine skins, the new wine. Jesus begins to use a procedure in haberdashery to explain how the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, works. Unfortunately for me, I know so little about sewing that I actually learned how to patch a jacket by reading this bit in that. But it seems like the premise is simple enough, right? Uh, if you take a new piece of fabric, one that's never been used, never stretched, never strained, it's unwashed, it's not yet even stable in its own dimensions, um, it's freshly woven fabric. And if you take that patch and you put it onto an old jacket, um, something that's worn in, yet it's worn out, something that's comfortable, and yet it's deteriorating. If you try and stitch that new patch onto the old jacket tightly, you try and weld those bits of fabric together, then the first time you wash it, it's, the patch shrinks, it's just going to tear away from the hole, you're no good, you're back to where you started, possibly even worse. Maybe you just have to get rid of the old garment. Similarly, Jesus talks about putting new wine into new wine skins. And again, I'm out of my depth because I know nothing about drinking wine or storing it. Um, the only wine skins I've seen were from college and they came in little silver packets and cups. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Jesus is talking about good. <laughs> but, luckily, uh, there's lots of information available on the practices of old wine skins. You see, it wasn't silver foil that they used, but instead animal skins to store wine into. When you make a fresh wine screen from the hide of a recently deceased animal, uh, the leather is nice and soft and pliable and a little bit stretchy, but quite strong. That's a good thing because as you put the new wine into it and you seal it inside, uh, it continues to ferment a little bit and the gases come out and it expands, putting pressure. And what should happen is that the skin sort of stretches a little bit with that process that keeps it all inside. As your wine skin ages, however, it loses that flexibility. It becomes stiff, it becomes brittle. Uh, and if you were to try and reuse an old wine skin, filling it with new wine, uh, once that fermentation process starts, it would stretch and have nowhere to go, it wouldn't move, and you would end up popping and bursting your wine skin. How sad. Your wine would spill everywhere. It would be useless. You don't put new wine into old wine skins. The old is not compatible with the new. You can't put your old practices and the expectations onto the new kingdom that Jesus brings. That is what Jesus is saying. And that is what Matthew is trying to make us understand in this back half of chapter 9. The disciples of John, they probably already knew this. After all, weren't they 
actually fasting because they saw the problems of the world, they recognised the sin and decay. Their fasting was a hope for a new era, in one where they actually wouldn't have to mourn and fast. But Jesus wants to go beyond that and show them that actually he has brought that <coughs> kingdom, he's brought it in, he's starting it now. That's why he's the bridegroom, and those who are with him aren't fasting. So to put it into a practical sense, Jesus will show them the arrival of God's new kingdom uh, with another set of miracles, and they kick off immediately. While this is happening, while Jesus was saying these things, a synagogue leader came to him, begged him to come and heal his daughter, who was dead. So in verse 19, Jesus got up, went with him, as did his disciples. What's Jesus going to show us about the new kingdom that he brings through this dead girl? Let's find out. Uh, But first he has an encounter with another woman who needs saving. Let's read together from verse 20. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. He said to herself, he, she said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. It's a miraculous healing. Jesus brings in the kingdom of God. For 12 years, this woman has been healed. No treatment that she's tried, nothing she's been able to work with has been able to heal her. This sickness has even isolated her socially because under Jewish law, she's ceremonially unclean. She can't participate in any of the religious practices while she's bleeding. Yet in one short encounter with Jesus, she's healed completely. A time of blessing has come upon this woman. She has been saved. Still, there's more to do. Uh, And so Jesus continues on to his house with the dead girl. And when he gets there, the girl is definitely dead. That's what the father said in verse 18. That's what the professional mourners can confirm for us in 23 and 24. See, these uh, pipe players, these flute players, they were professionals who were paid for by the family to come and breathe with them. There would have been women there who were hired to wail and to to mourn and to make loud noises to know that this is a period of grief for the family. That only happens when someone's died. And so as Jesus gets there, he sees the loud noise of this crowd going on. Um, He puts them outside. These people laugh at him when Jesus suggests that the girl is anything other than dead. It's too late for this little girl. She did not get to see the arrival of God's new kingdom. Except this is the exact moment that shows God's new kingdom has arrived with Jesus. As he takes her by the hand, she stands to her feet. She is no longer dead because she has encountered Jesus. It's amazing. She was dead. She has been raised to life. This is the work of the new kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus brings in. It is breaking in and it is a kingdom of life. 
feel that wasn't enough for a day's work. Uh, as Jesus moves on, presumably on his way back home, two blind men follow him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. Why, that's a, that's a term for God's chosen king. The Messiah, the ruler of God's kingdom. God promised to King David a, a while ago that he would use someone from his family line to establish God's kingdom forever. The blind men are calling Jesus that king. They don't call out, oh, have mercy on us, healer. Have mercy on us, doctor. They call him by his true title. The irony is that though these men are blind, they seem to have the clearest vision of who Jesus really is in this chapter. For them, Jesus brings the men inside. He asks them if they do truly believe what they're saying, that Jesus is able to heal them. When they confirm their faith in him, he touches their eyes and their vision is restored, good as ever. This little set of miracles happening in quick succession after the confrontation with John's disciples, they're all set up to reveal this, the time that we've been waiting for, for the arrival of God's new kingdom. It's happening, and it's begun in Jesus. That's what the disciples and Pharisees and the scribes, that's the bit that they hadn't seen, that Jesus is the one who brings God's kingdom. They've been so hung up on the issues that were fading away, things that were now incompatible with the new kingdom. You see, the problem for them is that fasting doesn't get you into the new kingdom. Being obedient to the law and teaching and the teachings of the religious elders, that, that didn't in and of itself grant you access to the kingdom of God. But did you see what did in these miracles? It was the faith of those who needed saving. The people in this chapter get direct, direct access to the kingdom of God and they do so through faith. When the woman uh, is cured in verse 22 um, of her bleeding, Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's your lucky day, you happen to be in the right place at the right time. Nor does he say it's because she's followed all the rules. It's because out of desperation and nothing left, she puts all her trust in Jesus. And he says, it is your faith that has healed you. Similarly, that's the point with the blind man. He asks them, do they have faith that Jesus can do that? And they say, yes. He says, let it be done according to your faith. The way to get access to God's kingdom is to have faith in Jesus Christ, to put your trust in him as Lord and Saviour. And that is true even today. To be a part of the kingdom of God, you must put your faith in Jesus. He alone offers salvation. It can be found nowhere else. Even though our whole world is still under the suffering of sin and under the tyranny of death, we know that Jesus, from this chapter in Matthew 9, he has begun to undo all of that. There's a new way. By faith we trust that Jesus 
will bring about the fullness of God's kingdom. He will bring that about to us in the end. <coughs> Jesus will bring about the fullness of God's kingdom in the end. Let me show you what that end is that the king uh, it requires some work on your part, so we're going to go to Revelation 21. Keeping a portion of your anatomy in Matthew chapter 9, please turn also to Revelation chapter 21. It's quite easy to find, just go straight to the back of your Bible, and once you've almost run out of pages, before you get to glossary, you'll find uh, chapter 21 of Revelation, the second last chapter in the Bible. These are the final scenes of a vision that depicts the whole creation brought under the rule of Jesus. This is the end that will be achieved by the beginning of what Jesus brought in chapter 9. God's kingdom in its full measure. Read with me verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you hear what this is saying? Doesn't it sound exactly like what Jesus began to do in Matthew 9? Again, there's a scene of a wedding. A bride has been prepared. Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the men, just as Jesus walked amongst the towns of the how about verse 4? He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, crying, mourning, or pain. Doesn't that sound like Jesus wiping away the tears of the father whose daughter he has just raised from the dead? There's no longer any need for mourning. Throw the mourners outside. They're incompatible because there's no longer any death, crying, or pain in the new kingdom of God. That's the new thing, the new patch, the new wine Jesus alludes to. As he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making everything new. That was the beginning in Matthew 9. This is the end in Revelation 21. And as a Christian today, guess where you sit? Somewhere at the end of the Because you see, we are still afflicted by the pains of sin and death in our lives now. Yet we know that Jesus is ruling and has begun the reign of the new kingdom. What are we to do? Should we be feasting or should we be fasting? Given the time of year, you may be aware of various uh, Christmas appeals of Christian charity organisations. Uh, like ones like the Salvos or St. Vinnie's, um, organisations who provide comfort to individuals and families who are having a hard time. They collect uh, food items, toys, clothing, anything that's useful um, to give to people who are suffering, who are affected by death 
to care for those people in their time of need and grief. Every year there's also a big event called Christmas Lunch in the Park. It happens on December 25th in Wellington Square, East Perth. It's run by a Christian community service group, uh, Mission Australia. Their purpose is to provide a free lunch and fellowship for uh, this atmosphere, particularly for people who are homeless, or unable to feed themselves, or don't have any family to enjoy Christmas with. It's an event run by Christians where there is literally a feast for those who often find themselves fasting. And I reckon these are the things that Christians should be doing in response to Matthew chapter 9. Because we've seen how Jesus came to establish a new kingdom where people are healed and raised to live life with God no more suffering, no more death, sickness, blindness, mourning. We know how one day that kingdom of God will be fully revealed and how those things that are gone, they are incompatible with life in the new kingdom. And so Christians should act in ways which display the hope we have that one day the bad stuff will be gone that means having compassion on people who are finding life tough now. Doing what we can to alleviate the suffering of other people in this age. Salvo's Vinny's uh, Mission Australia, they will do a great job of that locally. Um, perhaps you can join them this holiday season. Uh, they've all got sign-ups and registration resources online. Similarly, I might recommend um, the work of Tia Australia. They're uh, a partner who we support in mission and prayer. Um, they have a, they operate on a global level, giving aid to developing communities and doing so in the name of Jesus. We often uh, pray for them in our possible partners' prayer updates, and we get their updates uh, to put in our bulletins. They've got this catalogue full of useful gifts. I've got a few copies of this here, and they'll be on the info table where I'll be uh, after the service. You can use those to purchase a Christmas gift that will send care to those in our world who need it. We won't see the end of pain and grief until after Jesus returns with the full force of the kingdom. But the gospel message encourages us now to spend big, to be generous with what we've got because of our assurance in the day that will come when there will be no more death and suffering. We have assurance of that for our faith in Jesus. Please consider what Jesus uh, is asking of you to do through these chapters of Matthew's Gospel. There's lots in there. Have a think about how you can shape your life to reflect the truth about God. And you may even know someone close to you who needs comfort and compassion right now. My first advice would be uh, to uh, head up to the back to our prayer people uh, who will be up the back of the room after the service while supper is outside. They would uh, love to pray with you. Ask them to pray with you for the healing of our neighbours and for hope that we can find in Jesus outside. I'm going to pray now. Let's get ready to sing it.
Father, we sing how you've worked through your son Jesus. Uh, you made him ruler over everything, and you sent him to earth to establish your kingdom. Lord, uh, help us to see that truth, help us to have that focus on you to work towards uh, that day, and to trust in Jesus that he is bringing uh, everything under you. Help us not to be ignorant uh, while we wait for that. Help us to see the pain that still exists in the world and to do what we can to uh, care for people, to comfort people, to show them your love as you have loved us so much. These things we ask in the name of your King, your Son, Jesus. Amen.